Good morning to you. What a great day to repeal Obamacare, huh? I'm Dan Diamond. You're listening to Pulse Check. And that was Representative Tom Price speaking at a conference in 2012. The Georgia Republican and orthopedic surgeon has been one of the fiercest critics of Obamacare. He spent years calling for repeal and authoring a plan to replace it. And now, as Donald Trump's pick to run the Department of Health and Human Services, Price may have a chance to do exactly that. Now, any cabinet secretary nominee's positions and ideas get scrutinized. But given President-elect Trump's hands-off approach to policy during the campaign, it's fair to say there's a lot more focus on where Price stands, especially because he could play a major role in driving what's next for Obamacare and for our healthcare system. So this episode of Pulse Check is focused on Price, what he believes and what he could do as HHS secretary. First, you'll hear from Tom Daschle, the former Senate Majority Leader who was chosen by President Obama to be his first HHS secretary. Now, it didn't work out, as listeners know and we address on the podcast, but Daschle offers insight into how policy gets made and the relationship between the White House and the Cabinet. And then Stuart Butler of the Brookings Institution joins us to talk about the nuts and bolts of Price's policies, how they change the health insurance market, and why Stuart is a fan of many of Price's ideas. But first, here's the usual plug. If you like Pulse Check, please find us and subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Overcast, which is my favorite podcast app. Every time you leave us a rating or a review, we move up, more people can find us, and we're always grateful to see what you are saying about the show. And quickly, here's a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by the College of American Pathologists. Pathologists are physicians whose diagnosis drive care decisions made by patients, primary care physicians, and surgeons. When other physicians need more information about a patient's disease, they turn to pathologists. Learn more from the College of American Pathologists at cap.org slash pathologists. And now here's Tom Daschle. Eight years ago this month, it was you who was nominated to be HHS secretary. And I'm curious if you could just take our listeners inside that process. It was months in the making. How much of that was you pushing for that position? Was it President-elect Obama coming to you and saying, Senator, would you, would you serve as my HHS secretary? Just the process of even being put in that position in the first place. Well, the uh, process began with a call from the president. I really had no uh, uh, expectations, nor did I have any kind of, a, of an effort myself to uh, acquire the position. The president called me. Uh, uh, in fact, I recall exactly where I was. I was uh, in New York in a hotel lobby, and I got a call from the president, and uh, he, he asked if I wanted to join his cabinet and serve in that capacity. We had talked earlier about other positions, and uh, and uh, he ex- expressed an interest in having me join him and uh, indicated he was trying to think of where the best fit might be. And so um, that's where it started. Then the betting goes on, and uh, you go through what we call murder boards as the occasion arose where you were asked the toughest questions in preparation for hearing. I had one hearing before the 
um, the health committee, the health, education, labor, uh, and pension committee. But uh, but that's uh, that was uh, that was the extent of it. So, when it comes to thinking about the policy that a cabinet secretary might implement, you had been a leader on health care reform issues. I remember reading your book, Critical, which came out, I think, before the election on how health care could be, could be changed and improved. Was the expectation that you, as HHS secretary, and also the second position as White House health reform point person, was the expectation that you, Senator, would be coming up with the policy, or would it be the president's policy and you, as the secretary, the implementer of that? That's a good question, and I would say a little bit of both. Obviously, I had very strong ideas and uh, a lot of ideas about how we might proceed. But in any case, uh, it's always the president's decision. And the president, in this case, had a lot of ideas. He uh, didn't start out that way in the campaign, but over the course of about a year, he developed very clear ideas and a clear direction about what he wanted to do. We had big discussions about whether we should do single payer and start out with that, realizing we'd have to negotiate more to the middle. Uh, ironically, he said, no, I want to take something that I think has broad Republican support. Let's start with the Heritage Foundation plan. And that was antithetical to many of us because we thought, uh, where do you negotiate if you start where you want to end up or where you might likely end up? So it was a, a lot of discussion about where we start, what the strategy should be, and then specifically what the policies around that strategy should look like. Well, let me then flip this around. I mean, it, I, I hate to point at something that might be more of a sore spot. You did not become HHS Correct. secretary. And in retrospect, it was for some tax issues. We now have a president-elect who never even released his tax returns. I'm sure you must have thought at least at some moment about that across the past number of months. You do, but I always, I have an expression that I use a lot, that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. And so I prefer to look through the windshield and, and uh, as little as possible at the rearview mirror, except for ways with which you can use lessons learned for improvement going forward. Well, then let me, let me ask about a lesson learned, which is the goal had been you would be in both of these positions over HHS, running point in the White House. That job got split. Did that end up having a negative effect on the crafting of the Affordable Care Act now that we can look back seven, eight years on? I don't think it had a negative effect in part because you had strong people in the West Wing. My feeling was that there ought to be one person who who did everything in terms of the coordination. Obviously, it requires a real team effort. And, uh, and I still believe that. I, I think that it's critical as you get into the policy that Proximity to authority has everything to do with proximity to the Oval Office, and having that proximity is critical. But we we had strong people in the West Wing and strong people through Kathleen Sebelius and Bill Corr and others in the Department of Health and Human Services, and they worked well together. So uh, my fears were alleviated, but I, I do think that, that uh, having that infrastructure makes a lot of sense. Well, looking then at what the Trump administration would like to do and talking about health reform in a very different way, taking down parts of the Affordable Care Act, putting something else potentially in its place. Does it make sense for the Trump administration to have a split, or would it be more effective and efficient for an HHS secretary to be point person on health reform too? Well, I think the, 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 the critical question is, at what level of prioritization is 
health going to be, if it's going to be in the top three or four, if it's going to be in the top five, you really want somebody who can be, uh, and this is an overused term, but a czar-like individual, somebody who can really coordinate the entire effort. And it can't be bifurcated. It can't be uh, divided up uh, with a number of people involved, or you lose a lot of the ability to to move the process forward uh, in, a, in a good way. Um, but obviously, as I said, I think the president ultimately was able to do it with a different plan. Uh, my preferred plan would be to have that person solely responsible. Do you think Tom Price is equipped to be HHS secretary? Well, he's been in Congress for a number of years, and he's worked on the issue. He's a medical doctor. He's had uh, a, quite a bit of legislative experience in this field, the policy. I happen to disagree with most of it, but nonetheless, he has the experience. So I, I think you have to assume he is qualified. One of the challenges that I've heard a number of folks raise from both sides of the aisle is that running a cabinet agency means having to deal with a lot of bureaucracy. There are tens of thousands of employees at HHS. I think about 80,000 people all in all. Running a committee in Congress is a very different challenge. You had somewhat of a similar background, though you, you ran the Senate majority. What sorts of skills does an HHS secretary ideally need to have to be effective in that role? Well, I think the most important skill of all is not a skill per se, but a relationship with the president. What I worry about over the last 25 years is this migration of authority and responsibility away from the cabinet secretaries and more and more to the West Wing. That was really the reason I was so adamant about being in the West Wing as well. That's That still goes on. And unfortunately, it has a lot to do with uh, one's relationship with the president. So that's number one. You've got to have that proximity. You've got to have that relationship, that trust, that ability to walk into the Oval Office. And most cabinet secretaries, unfortunately, today don't have that. So that's number one, number two, and number three, as far as I'm concerned. In terms of the administrative responsibilities, uh, you know, that's why you have deputies, and that's why you have uh, other managers. I mean, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, and uh, you know, in particular, and obviously Sylvia Burwell, are, are excellent managers because they're good delegators. They delegated the responsibility to others who really knew the organizational challenges that uh, HHS faces. It's about 70,000 employees. So you've got to be a good delegator, and I think that would be a second skill that you'd want to look for. And, and to that point of having the president's ear, Price was a very early endorser of Exactly. Trump. So from that perspective, I think Congressman Price uh, will have an advantage. Uh, he was an early supporter. He certainly has the president's ear and the and president-elect and, the, and apparently the trust. And so I think that at least uh, bodes well for the initial relationship. Let's talk about some of those priorities that would face HHS Secretary Price if, if he's confirmed. One is the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Another is potentially Medicare reform. And then there are other health priorities kind of following after that. How realistic do you think it is that we will see ACA repeal and replace very quickly next year? Well, I think it's very, very hard to uh, anticipate complete repeal, especially given the commitment the president-elect has made. He has said over and over that he believes that many of the protections in the ACA ought to be continued. Well, somebody has to account for 
the resources necessary to make those protections work. That costs money. And there are really only two ways to do it. You can do it out of general revenues. We don't have the general revenues. Or you can do it through some requirement for participation in healthcare with the mandate that is currently part of law. Those are really the only two options available to us. So I think it's very, once those realizations are are completely understood, maybe not necessarily by Congressman Price. He may be willing to go through the general revenue approach. Uh, I, I think it's difficult, and I think getting a consensus around using general revenues, especially if it doesn't uh, accommodate an offset, uh, is going to be very difficult. That's just for starters. There are many other challenges as well. Well, the symbolic move to strike down parts of the law through budget reconciliation and then wait several years to actually do the replacement, that seems to be gaining favor among Republicans. Well, that's another obstacle because uh, it sends all the wrong messages to the private sector. You know, the private sector wants certainty. They want stability. They want something they can base their business model around. And you don't have that if you tell people, all right, we're going to phase this all out in two years. We have no clue how we're going to replace it, but you go figure it out. And we want you to stay in business all the same, and we hope you'll participate. You know, that is not a setting for participation. The Iowa insurance commissioner, a Republican, has said that move would be disaster because of the reasons you just pulled out? Well, we've seen a migration already away from um, the exchanges, uh, in part because the certainty wasn't there. We haven't been able to live up to our obligations on the risk-sharing part of it that uh, we guaranteed these companies. You're talking about the payments that were going to come exactly, to the insurance companies. Exactly. They're only at a fraction. It's around 20% of what we promised uh, that they've gotten so far. So it's no surprise, uh, no accident, that, uh, that you've seen this, this exodus from from some of the payers because uh, they need a more certain business model than what they've got right now. There's a saying, and, and indulge me in this, please, but there's a saying that only Nixon could go to China because he was so anti-communist that when he went, he had the flexibility and cover. I am wondering, Senator, Price is known for being so anti-Affordable Care Act. Does that buy the administration some cover if they end up not being as aggressive? and walking back from some of the rhetoric that, that they've spoken. I think it does. I think that uh, Congressman Price is the probably the perfect articulator of uh, the president's policies, uh, so long as he still has the president's ear and support, as I said a moment ago. But, uh, yeah, I think that people are going to be looking to him for guidance. You've invested all this time, Congressman Price, now Secretary Price. We're going to defer to you. What works, what doesn't? I will, having said that, though, I will say that the Lamar Alexanders of the world and others who have also invested a lot of time and effort are going to have their own say. And that will be the challenge. Can you reach a consensus among the, the experts on both sides of the aisle? And Lamar Alexander, the Tennessee senator who appeared on this podcast not so long ago, today made the statement that repeal needs to follow uh, coming up with a replacement. I, I believe the syntax there was deliberate. Well, I think so, too. I, I, I think it's really hard to ask if this is really supposed to be the public-private partnership that everybody has lauded and thought should be the model as we go forward on a lot of government programs, um, you can't have one without the other. And I think, uh, whether it was intentional or not, I think that uh, he's absolutely right. You've got to have the replacement before you have the repeal. Medicare reform, or the possibility of it, is currently alarming many Democrats. I think the challenge is that the Trump administration 
hasn't sent any strong signal here. It's been Congress, Paul Ryan, Price, who have spoken out about the possibility of Medicare reform next year. How much does that alarm you as a Democrat, as, as a former leader in the Senate? Well, it's very alarming. It's not new. This has been around for a long time. Congressman Ryan, in particular, has been in favor of premium support for for years and uh, hasn't gotten very far with it. I think it's going to continue to be a, a, a very serious issue for not only Democrats, but a lot of Republicans. A lot of Republicans are skeptical about it. And I have to say, you know, a lot of times, and I have to plead guilty myself, we've been, we've, we've been inclined to just cut and shift the costs. That is, cut the program and shift the costs onto states or onto beneficiaries or onto payers or, uh, or providers. Uh, there's you can't legitimately call some of these these ideas reform if all we're doing is shifting the cost. There's no reform in that. Uh, it may be a change. It's not reform. What they have to do is redesign and improve rather than cut and shift. And I'm really hopeful that as they look at options, they have that redesign and improve mental mode as they go forward. Looking at how the next number of years are going to play out, Republicans control the White House. They control Congress. It looks like the Supreme Court will soon lean Republican, too. What is the right strategy for Democrats? Is it to resist? Resist in the style of Senator McConnell? And to some extent, a strategy that I believe you helped do with with the resisting of privatizing entitlements? Or is it to look for as many opportunities to work with Republicans, even if that leads to Donald Trump getting reelected in four years? Well, I think cooperation has to be a two-way street, to use a, an old cliche. I think that it's really critical that uh, we demonstrate to the American people that even under these amazing circumstances, that uh, we elevate the importance of good governance. And good governance means you cooperate where you can, and obviously there are going to be times when you can't. You've really got to, to be... Uh, to, to be strong. But there are those who believe uh, on both sides of the aisle uh, that standing your ground is the only option for, uh, for the, their, their, their strategy. And I think that's, that's just not uh, the strategy to employ these days. Too many people have stood their ground and in not finding common ground, we've got a dysfunctional Congress and a, largely a dysfunctional federal government. We've got to create more of a functional government on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue and both sides of Congress. And that's going to take finding common ground. Would, would you be happy to see Democrats working with Republicans on Obamacare repeal? Well, I, 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 I don't, do not want to see Obamacare repeal, but I don't think anybody's seriously talking about repeal. I mean, you've already got the president saying that there are a lot of things he wouldn't repeal. So let's talk about change, and let's find ways with which to change to accommodate their concerns. But at the end of the day, what we all want is a high-performance, high-value healthcare marketplace with better access, better quality, and lower cost. I think we ought to be able to find common ground in doing that. You mentioned, Senator, that this is an amazing time, an amazing time for America and its democracy. How concerned are you about our democracy and the norms? Well, I'm very concerned, frankly. This is the most concerned I've been in my lifetime. And I, I, I have to say, I, I, I hope the best for our country. Uh, I think we need leadership. I think we need people to step up to the plate and, and perform and surprise people and defy expectations and 
and uh, I'm hopeful that my concerns are not warranted, but right now I'm very concerned. Who are the leaders that you're expecting to step up to the plate on the Democratic side? Well, obviously, we already have, uh, or we will soon have, elected leaders in both the House and the Senate. Uh, we certainly have them in the Senate now. It starts there, but it's not just the leadership uh, that are elected members of the caucus. It's it's leadership across the board. It's, it's going to be the governors who are going to have to step up to the plate. It's going to be uh, those people that uh, that may have auxiliary roles. It's going to be, you know, the leaders in each one of these agencies and departments. It's the people, the career people that have put all of their time and effort and, and uh, just all of themselves into public service who are going to need to step up and say, look, now we're shifting gears, and I've got to figure out a way to segue to, to make this all work. So we all have to really understand that we've got to put our shoulder to the wheel and make this work. Um, we don't have any other choice. One of the concerns from the presidential election was that Democrats didn't have a bench of young rising stars. Who do you see across the country, or maybe in Congress, that is a young rising star for the Democratic Party? Well, I don't know that I'm prepared today to name names. I, I think, uh, you know, frankly, I think we are uh, a little weak on a bench right now. I'd like to see a broader bench, a deeper bench. I think in part it's because for a long time we've had, um, you know, the Dashels and the Clintons and the, and the, the Obamas and others who have, have held positions that I think have maybe uh, – without intentionally doing so, suppress the opportunity for younger people to rise. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, this new, I wouldn't call it a vacuum, but but this new need for new leadership is uh, going to become even more apparent and people will step up to the plate. I'm every, I'm very confident that we can do that. You could argue that this election will be a catalyzing function. No question. Yeah. No question. I think in many, in some respects, it's a good thing because, uh, the talent is there. I've talked to people all over the country, and I must say I'm, I'm always inspired by the experiences because I'm, I'm just struck by the intelligence and the dynamism and the, the, just the, the idealism that so many people bring to the table, and uh, that will continue. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll be back with Stuart Butler in a moment. One thing to remember about Stuart while he works for Brookings, which is seen as a more liberal policy shop, Stewart's a conservative who spent decades at the Heritage Foundation. I think he's fair when looking across at different policies and ideas, but keep that in mind as he breaks down prices plans. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the College of American Pathologists. Pathologists are an integral part of a patient's care team. Their work is critical to delivering the right care and treatment at the right time to achieve optimal outcomes. A patient may never meet his or her pathologist, but the value of pathologists is felt throughout the care continuum and in every patient encounter. Learn more from the College of American Pathologists at cap.org pathologists. And now, Stuart Butler. Looking at the Tom Price pick for HHS secretary, was that a good selection? I think it made a lot of sense. It wasn't a big surprise at all. Uh, obviously, as a physician, he's been intimately interested in the health issues uh, and very uh, critical of uh, the Affordable Care Act. 
And therefore, he fitted that sort of one criterion, somebody who really has both understands the issue and has campaigned for many years strongly against it. Uh, he's also somebody, I think, that you know, uh, can work comfortably across the aisle to a degree and certainly um, deals very pleasantly with people of all persuasion. He's actually been to Brookings here at least three times in the last year. Uh, Scheduled to come on Wednesday. That's you, correct. You, yeah, you are going to introduce time. him. That's correct. Uh, so, you know, he's comfortable having conversations of that kind. He's like Ryan in that sense, I think. that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan. Speaker Ryan is, uh, has a reputation for being very keen to get out of his immediate political comfort zone and talk to a range of people. Uh, so I think that's uh, important. And I think, uh, you know, with, uh, with Price at the helm at HHS... And uh, Seema Verma, who will be heading up the Centers on Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is dealing a lot, of course, with the Medicaid program, dealing with the states and so on. The combination, I think, is a very strong um, uh, choice. And given that the the primary um, commitment that uh, Trump made uh, was to repeal and replace, and uh, uh, Price has been very much in the forefront of the Republican House uh, proposals in that area. He's, he's made kind of a name for himself these past number of years, speaking out against the law and coming up with his own proposal. Yes, that's right. And and these proposals that he has authored and, and others like him, including uh, uh, Speaker Ryan um, and, and uh, others on the Senate side, uh, you know, fit a, a certain pattern. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about sure. Price's proposal, the Empowering Patients First mm-hmm. Act. And I've heard from folks that I've talked to that price is as much of a policy wonk as anyone who is called for ACA repeal. That's a fairly fleshed out yes, bill. That is correct. Uh, this is something that he has really enjoyed throwing himself into. But it it has some key differences from some of the other proposals. In in your mind, Stuart, what is the best thing about Price's proposal versus some of the other Republican ideas that have been floating around? Well, I think the best thing about the price proposal is really something it shares in common to some degree with uh, other proposals. Again, this common DNA. Yeah, uh, which is um, really redesigning the, uh, the subsidy system using an explicit tax credit mechanism, which is age-related, which in practice means um, it's pretty broadly health-related in, in very broad terms. One of the problems with the Affordable Care Act has been not being able to get enough younger, healthier people to sign up. And it's indeed a challenge uh, to do that when uh, the cost of underlying health coverage is so high because of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, among other things. Um, but that, also, that there aren't as many flexibilities around the age rating, for example. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so uh, he would do away with the age rating, but 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 um, alter the subsidy by age. So it, it's trying to solve the same problem in, in, a, in a similar way. How do you make sure that the person who is older doesn't end up paying a fortune for healthcare and somebody who's very young gets it really on the cheap? Um, trying to have these age bands where you limit the difference was one was the Affordable Care Act solution. 
that immediately runs into the problem, why would I, if I'm really young and healthy, want to buy insurance where I haven't been to the doctor in three years, I don't expect to have a lot of illness, why should I do that? This has been the Obama administration's key challenge, trying to get these younger folks who are healthy, who don't necessarily need insurance. And and during the, the debate over the Affordable Care Act, this came up over and over again. The insurers made the argument very strongly that that kind of very narrow band, relatively narrow band, of three to one, uh, meant that they really couldn't price for young and healthy people sufficiently to get enough of them to come into the market to uh, get a, a very broad risk bond. That's, of course, exactly what's happened. And uh, given the, 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 the bitter partisan history, really, of the Affordable Care Act, both going through and subsequently, instead of being able to go back to Congress and adjust this in some way, it's had to remain in place. And that's been a constant problem. And it's led to lots of other problems uh, in terms of reinsurance markets and so forth. Well, let's let's drill in on the age rating for a second. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand that point that if the goal is to get the risk pool more diversified, to bring younger Americans in, which Obamacare hasn't fully achieved, mm-hmm. and the price plan would seemingly make it cheaper for those Americans to get covered. But on the flip side, the older Americans who might be getting more of a break, the older, sicker Americans who are benefiting from the current structure, they could stand to lose under the price model. Yes, but, but the, the price model is that the subsidy system um, is uh, differs depending on age. And so somebody who's 50, I think it is, or 55 and above, uh, would get almost, well, would get about two and a half times as much credit as somebody who's a younger person. So one way or the other, you've got to cross-subsidize people. You either do it in a sense implicitly and almost in a disguised way by just telling insurers, don't charge the person as much as it's really going to cost you to cover. That, that, that's the age band model. The alternative is to say, okay, let them, let them uh, charge what the market would bear, both for the younger person and making it very attractive for the younger person and the older person, which would be more expensive, and then use... A, essentially a taxpayer subsidy to offset the cost. And that's the heart of the, of the price approach and the approach of, a, of other, some other Republicans as well. And, and it's something that I've kind of argued for over the years, um, not necessarily by age, but certainly um, looking at different conditions and saying if somebody's very unlikely to demand a lot of coverage, uh, a lot of services, then allow the market to price that product uh, less expensively. And then for the, for the other person, let's use subsidies to offset. Let's not try to muck up the market because uh, you always, <laughs> it comes back to sting you, which is exactly what we've, we've seen. You, you have, you have uh, a very narrow um, uh, uh, premium range, and then you have to have a mandate to try to make somebody buy a product that they really don't want because they're saying, I, you know, to, to pay this every month, two or three hundred dollars or more, have a four or five thousand dollars deductible as well. So even if I go to the doctor, I still got to pay. Uh, what's in this? For, why would I want to do this? So it, it's uh, what Price has done is used essentially an economist's uh, approach to how you would deal with this cross subsidy, rather than a regulator's approach of using um, restrictions on the pricing of the actual product itself. That's the difference. Another piece of the price plan would be repealing the Medicaid expansion. And there's no clear way that that would get 
replaced. Mm -hmm. My understanding of your work, Stuart, is that you are not a fan of the Medicaid expansion through the Affordable Care Act. At the same time, millions of people, 12 million people, mm -hmm. have gained coverage through Medicaid since the ACA took effect. What happens to those Americans? Well, let's realize that, that expanding Medicaid beyond uh, the disabled, the, the very poor, and so on, really is just saying we're going to help finance health coverage for those individuals through uh, you know, money from the federal government, matched, of course, ultimately to some degree by the states, not, not right now, but in, in the future, uh, and provide them with a designed package of services. What Price and others are saying is, no, no, we don't do that. What we do is actually give them the funds they need to sign up for the coverage they want, either in the individual market or to afford, to be able to afford to, to, to say, cover their whole family through an employer-sponsored coverage. Because, of course, there are many people who, who have employer-based coverage but really don't feel able to afford what their employer is going to charge them for to cover their whole family. So if you think of it that way, it makes, in a sense, perfect sense to say, well, rather than just have something called Medicaid, why don't we just give them the money and allow them to be like everybody else, signing up for health insurance, either if the exchanges remain, through an exchange kind of model or through an employer-based uh, model. Now, let's also remember that you've seen, uh, particularly Indiana, uh, so Governor Pence, who's going to become the vice president, uh, has gone down the, the sort of a, almost like a third way. They accepted, Indiana accepted the expansion, but then said, but wait a minute, we don't want to do it the way that the federal government designed it. We want to come in with something which is a much more individualized system with a health savings account mm -hmm. and, a, and a very modified system. And that's like a, sometimes called the, you know, the private option for Medicaid. And that's really what I've argued for. I'd say, you know, rather than, than require um, Medicaid per se to be the only way somebody can get coverage in that income range, let's just recognize that, that what we're doing is subsidizing coverage. Let's just subsidize coverage. And if it makes sense for somebody in that income range to, uh, to acquire their insurance or their coverage in some other ways, let's, exper let's experiment with that. Let the state come up with ideas. And I think that is actually part of what you're going to see in this equation in the future. Well, a, a quick question on Medicaid and then going on to maybe the mm -hmm. next policies that we'll expect from Pence and, and team. My understanding is that the private option models, while achieving coverage expansion and allowing some state-level flexibility, aren't as efficient or as inexpensive as simply mm -hmm. the Medicaid expansion. So if the goal at the end of the day is to hold spending down, isn't Medicaid expansion Traditional well, Medicaid expansion. It's not the only goal. I mean, you know, quality you can get, outcomes would you can be get the... very inexpensive health care very easily. It's not very good and so on. And there's been a lot of criticism, of course, of Medicaid in terms of its effectiveness, uh, including how many doctors are available to you and so forth. So, so I think it's important to recognize that some of these experiments, and they are experiments at the state level, um, have come up with you know, a, a range of, of uh, results some uh, more um, you know, beneficial than others, uh, and they're going to be modified. I think if you look at the overall vision, uh, and if you think of the American healthcare system as, in, in a sense, being too big and complex to be 
standardized, then you'd want to see states trying different variations on the general theme. And they're not all going to be successful in the first instance. Part of the idea is to learn from each other and to modify over time. So let's talk about those state-level innovations. Mm -hmm. on, on the one hand, we have governor or Vice President-elect Pence, who is governor of Indiana, expanded Medicaid through this third way, as you said. We have Tom Price, who has been a champion of state-level reforms. It sounds like you think that that is going to be a hallmark of the Trump administration health policy moving forward. I think it's going to be very much uh, increasing the power of individuals through direct subsidies uh, in combination with allowing states much greater flexibility to try out different variations of, of health insurance regulation, of, of structuring markets, uh, and of dealing with complicated cases, the very sick people, the people who've got multiple problems and so forth. That's, I think, what you're going to see. And that's certainly in line with what's been happening uh, in those states like Indiana and more conservative states, Arkansas and so forth, uh, of experimenting with Medicaid in that regard. Medicaid has pretty considerable latitude to grant waivers. And even, of course, under the Obama administration, um, there were some very creative um, uh, waivers that were agreed to. Under a Trump administration, I think you're going to get to a whole new level of experimentation of that kind. So when I think of, of actually, when I think of uh, repeal and replace, um, I don't necessarily think of it as primarily one large new piece of legislation replacing an existing large piece of legislation. I think at least in the first year or so, it's probably going to be much more an issue of giving a green light to states to come forward with both in the Medicaid program and in the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act has a very important provision called Section 1332 that allows a state to come to the federal government and say, okay, we will meet the objectives of the Affordable Care Act in terms of coverage, out-of-pocket, and so forth. But we want to do it in a very different way. We want to use the subsidies very differently. We want to get rid of mandates. We want to um, get rid of or, or change the exchange system. Within current law, there's a, there's a wide variation of possibilities for states. Do you feel like it's then less repeal and replace and more repeal and experiment? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big experimenter anyway. And, and uh, when, you do, when you have a lot of experimentation, when you have a lot of innovation, the net effect is to come up with something very different. Uh, and that's what I think is, is very much the crucial part of this. So after all of these experiments begin, do you think the U.S. uninsured rate, which is now historically low, it's 9%, is it going to stay where it is? Is it inevitable that it may go up given the changes to coverage packages? I mean, I, clearly I hope it'll go down. Um, I think it is important to recognize that insurance coverage in itself, uh, to say that you're covered sometimes is, is a metaphysical concept to a lot of people. If you've got, if you're paying $300 uh, a month for an insurance package that has a three or $4,000 deductible that you never use up during the year. So yes, you may get um, you know, some inexpensive or, or low cost uh, regular visits to the doctor and so on. But is this really insurance? So I think it's important not just to look at the raw number of coverage but also to say, what is this person actually getting? And can we 
bring out about a situation where the the range of, of products available to people may change, may be leaner for some people, but adequate. Uh, I think that's part of the equation. Of course, Mr. Price would also say that um, part of the problem today is that there is so much regulation and requirements, including, he would say, um, the way the, the legal system deals with malpractice, for example, that just keep pushing up the underlying cost of healthcare. And if we start to disentangle that, then the the base price of getting medical services will begin to top out and hopefully decline. I've, I've noticed you called yourself an experimenter. We've talked a couple times about different experiments. I, I think in practice, experiments don't universally pan out. Yeah, that's correct. What, what percentage of experiments in healthcare do you think are successful and what percentage need to be successful? I, I don't think you can quite do it that way. Uh, because there's always degrees of success and degrees of failure in almost every situation. Sometimes things work out differently than you expected, not necessarily better or worse, and so on. We, you learn as you go along. I mean, the, the other alternative uh, you know, is to say, okay, let's get all the best minds together. And you can go back to almost the, the period of Bill Clinton on this. Let's get all the best minds in the, in, into the uh, basement of the White House, let them get their computers and figure it all out, and then sort of impose that on everybody, the best that you can come up with. Um, that just doesn't work in, in anything this scale. If, if you look at the, at the healthcare economy in the United States, in other words, if you look at all the money we spend on, on healthcare, if that was actually a national economy, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. So the notion that you could run the equivalent of the, of the economy of Britain, where I come from, or, or France, with one piece of legislation and you know uh, an agency in Washington trying to figure out all the details as they went along. Uh, I mean, what could go wrong, right? Uh, it, it, it's bound to fail, and and that's it's always going to be the case. And and even if it succeeds at the beginning, over time, things change. Uh, the economics of healthcare changes. What we know, what we can do, changes. So you have to have a constant change. So you've got to build a system that, in a sense, will replace itself over time anyway. Uh, so the key of, of, of federal policy is to create the architecture and the incentive system to allow change over time to happen in, 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 a, in a way that protects you know, the interests of individuals, doesn't leave people behind, and so on, and, and recognizes that and limits the, the degree of risk that any individual has to face, evaluates, monitors, allows states to learn from each other, and so on. That, to me, is, is the process. And I think, um, I think that's what you will see uh, combined, as I said, with, with fundamental changes in the, in the subsidy system uh, of, of the Affordable Care Act. Well, in that context, though, that we have a system where reforms are introduced and replaced and, and the system evolves, were the Obama administration's reforms in balance necessary and good reforms to move our system forward? Well, I think, you know, the tragedy of the Affordable Care Act um, uh, is, is that if you go back um, before the, uh, the Obama administration, you really did see, I wouldn't say it was a consensus uh, at all, but you certainly saw some common threads on both sides of the aisle uh, and and in the, um, you know, in the professionals, the researchers and the practitioners. And this was kind of coming together. 
Um, and that's why, incidentally, uh, Obama can, in a sense, quite correctly say from time to time, well, that was a Republican idea that I included. Because to some extent, that's that's absolutely the case. And, and you know something about that, having been at the Heritage <laughs> Foundation and coming up with the individual mandate all well, those years I guess, ago. Although, I realize yeah, it's, a, it's a different kind of mandate. Yes, exactly. you, you walked away from it exactly. before the Affordable Care Act. And, and we learn. I mean, we learn in terms of the technology of policy, which is one of the reasons sometimes to move away from certain uh, ideas. Trump, during the campaign, pledged not to touch Medicare. Mm. Tom Price has said Medicare reform, Medicare privatization— coming in the second half of 2017. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I certainly hope that uh, Trump um, reimagines his, uh, his commitment there because from not just a medical point of view of kind of moving to a different kind of structure to empower people, but from a financial point of view, when we look at the, at, uh, the future of federal spending, you have to deal with these entitlements and you have to rein them in. So I can understand politically why not touching Medicare uh, was a very attractive thing to say. But in practice, I think we've got to move very much in the direction. I certainly favor uh, the, the approach of Price and, and Speaker Ryan and others towards more of a defined um, contribution model or some, sometimes called premium support. And, that, and that's a very, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on both sides of the aisle over many years. There were people here at Brookings uh, who certainly did not vote for Mr. Trump. Uh, who uh, have been engaged in the conversation over how you design Medicare uh, along these lines. And I think that could be a very fruitful development. I think that is actually, ironically, an area where you could see um, some bipartisan agreement, ultimately. There'll be a lot of noise before that. That's, that's interesting because I've heard a lot of pushback so far on the idea from the liberal side. Any idea of touching Medicare. Yeah. That, that, that is an alarming and in a way for liberal groups to raise support from their base. Mm-hmm. Thinking about that balance of the political and the practical, I'm thinking about how the Trump administration is going to deal with the constituencies that benefited from Obamacare coverage expansion. I, I think I've heard you make this point, Stuart, mm-hmm. that yeah. some of the voters who backed Trump benefited from Obamacare. There was a piece in the Washington Post today about this, about the yeah. poor whites. I, I think there's two kind of groups. I mean, one is you just said the poor whites, or at least the the people who um, come from areas of the country with not very good medical services. They themselves don't generally have good health. There's data coming out showing that you can almost track. There's almost a perfect correlation between people living in really unhealthy counties and support, switching of support towards Trump. There's a fascinating study. So, so yeah. first of all, I don't think it's very likely that we'll see repeal in the sense of saying to all these people, well, now you don't have any coverage. Uh, and then secondly, you've got the whole infrastructure of the healthcare system. You've got hospitals, clinics, insurers that have, have spent a lot of money adjusting to uh, the Affordable Care Act, even if they didn't care for it. It's a business decision. And I think that's also going to be a pushback uh, on, on a radical repeal model. Uh, so I, 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 think, I think that's right, by the way, that the industry is going to be more of a check than some folks might realize. Oh, I think so, their... yeah. I, and, and that's always the case. I mean, you can look at, at, at environmental policy over the years. You can look at all kinds of things. Once, once an industry uh, is dragged sort of kicking and screaming down a different road and then says, OK, you know, you know now we'll, we'll just have to live with this law. And then they start making major investment decisions based on that. They don't want to go back to what it was before. 
And so that's going to be part of the equation too. There's going to be a lot of pushback from insurers, from hospitals, and that's going to show up in individual districts, of course. Uh, you're going to see uh, that pressure. So I think it's going to be a much more um, uh, careful and, and steady um, repeal and replace model, not this sort of catastrophic, sudden sort of overnight sensation, which I think some of the fiercest critics are concerned about. Thanks for listening to Pulse Check today. And thanks to our terrific producer, Bridget Mulcahy. You can find Pulse Check on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Overcast, on other podcast apps that I don't even know we should be there. And if you have suggestions for who we should be talking to in an upcoming episode, you can always email me at ddiamond at politico.com. And we'll be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.